Welcome to Likeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Likeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Likeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's, and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. So, welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with Genevieve uh, Wenerowski. Did I get it right? I was like, okay. Uh, so, uh, Genevieve is one of the first guests we had on the podcast um, last year. I think you were maybe number three, four, like really one of the first, first guests. So a lot has happened in the last year, like a lot, a lot, a lot. So in the intervening time, um, you ran a political campaign, uh, which we're definitely going to talk about at some point for sure. And the podcast, well, we're in a we're we're in a nicer <laughs> nicer studio, more like professional studio, and we've got way way more uh, sponsors and way more listeners, and so Great. lots of things lots of things have changed. And you've had many venerable guests since this. We've had time. many many yeah venerable and deplorable guests. Yes, <laughs> this is this is true. We've had many of them. So so you're uh, you're a writer, mm-hmm. and I feel like the first time. The first time that you were on the podcast, you and I were in many ways um, coming from the same world in the sense that we're both people that are dealing with things from uh, more of a distance, like kind of us writers detached, interested in ideas and interested. But you had, you've changed. I mean, I'm probably very largely the same, but you (laughs) have changed because you've had um, this experience of seeing how the sausage is made and seeing how politics actually works in a big, pluralistic, multicultural democracy like ours. And uh, you've, I know you've written some things about that. I know your best work on you know, those reflections is yet to come because I, I know you've mentioned it in passing. But um, how, how did it... I guess that, that's sort of a perfect place for us to start is... How did it change you seeing how our democracy, how a political campaign actually works? How did that change your mind about things? 
I'm not sure that it changed my mind about things so much, but it was a <clears throat> humbling <laughs> experience. Yeah. I can't stand it normally when people use that word. Because it's always just, bullshit. Usually. It's always the opposite yeah. of humbling. It's right? like false modesty. It's totally like, humble. It's like what is it? Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, like, <laughs> most of what we call humility is, in fact, uh, sort of arrogance, you know, like, like, Blindly concealed arrogance or something like uh, that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's very exactly. true. But it actually has humble G sex. So. I, I would say, you know, at least temporarily. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it it is easier to take a stand on things in some ways, or or to write about it dispassionately and and you know humorously or um, or, or even intelligently in some cases um, when you haven't actually been involved, sort of. Uh, you know, personally implicated um, in, as you say, you know, making making the sausage. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds terrible, it's so, I know. It's so terrible. Yeah, I take that back. I did not make any sausage. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the well, I guess what I one of the things that I took away from the experience was that politicians work incredibly hard, and we're really really hard on them. Um, when we're sort of commenting about what these people who are putting themselves out there are doing and, and the way in which they're they're going about their business. You know, it's so easy to be critical just to um and, and to just to attack them for every minor breach of, you know, whatever it might be, etiquette or their supposed ideals or whatever it is that we're projecting onto them and so on. When in fact, I, I, yeah, I think I really came away with the notion that in order to do politics, I mean, unless you're, a, I guess, a sociopath who, you know, just derives pleasure out of manipulating people, and I, I hope and believe that that's the minority, I think that the people who do that kind of work really do want to make a difference. They want to help people. We may not agree with the way in which they're doing it. We may think it's stupid. We may think it's wrongheaded, or we may admire it. Um, but I, I do think that that's, that's something that I really, really learned um, and then the other thing is just like from a sort of sociological point of view, um, kind of understanding a little bit better uh, who the communities are out there who are being served by our politicians and our politics. Um, you know, I met a lot of people uh, and a lot of groups uh, who I would have had nothing to do with, quite frankly. I probably would never have spoken to, not because I disdain them, but because I just wouldn't have crossed paths necessarily with those people. Um, and I got a chance to get to know some people quite well, quite intimately during um, the course of this this experience. And uh, um, it was really enlightening uh, to understand, profoundly understand, to understand personally what the stakes are for people in politics. Yeah. In their everyday lives. No, I've, I've definitely had the experience uh, over the years doing some campaigning and canvassing and stuff like that for um, for Projet Marial, for the Green Party, for the NDP, for various... Uh, you get to, There is this kind of spin-off effect that you get to know your community in a way like much, much better than you did before yeah. because it's... Even if you try, even if you have a wide circle of friends, even if you have kids that are involved in lots of activities and things like that, uh, you participate in various. It's it's amazing how easy it is to just slip into these kind of subcultures, and you don't realize you're in one. Like you don't realize that there's like a a particular bubble that you can live in. You know that, and it can be big enough that it feels like 
it's all of Montreal or, or a representative yeah. chunk of Montreal. Mm-hmm. And then you get out of it and you realize there's this whole other, you know, Bengali world and there's this whole other, like, you know, South Asian kind of world. And there's this whole, uh, there's all these different communities that have these vibrant, vibrant lives and that you may have had no idea, right? Like what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's that aspect of it. And, you know, you and I both live in the sort of Mile End Plateau, Uchmont area. And um, most of the people we know are pretty cosmopolitan. They care about what's going on in the world. We feel like we have a pretty good handle on, you know, the issues affecting um, our fellow citizens and, you know, uh, the various struggles that people are having and so on. And we know people who are involved in different ways. But that's different from actually going and sitting in people's, you know, living rooms and kitchens and storefronts in Cote Neige on these little side streets um, that, that 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 we just never really never journey down, um, and actually talking to them or listening to them more importantly versus pontificating about what their, you know, what their needs might be. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was talking to, I, I think you're friends with him as well, Shuvo Ghosh. Um, he, I think you're, you know, him. anyway. Is he the doctor? Um, yeah, he's a doctor. Okay, he's a pediatrician yeah, and yes. really kind of all around fascinating guy. Yeah. He's actually been on the podcast. We were talking about his yeah. work with trans youth and things like that. Yeah. But uh, we were talking about this just today because of he spends a fair amount of time in New Zealand and he has a lot of friends there and he has like tight. And so he's obviously as many people were really, really upset and shocked by the, what happened in Christchurch with these, these uh, like they're, they were what Australian white nationalists. Is that what they've said so far? I I haven't really Australian. Yeah. Yeah. And they went into, um, into a couple of different mosques in Christchurch and killed 49. 49 people. And a lot of people have been injured. And uh, quite a few of them apparently had written on their guns, uh, Alexandre Bissonnette. Yeah, right? I heard about that. Yeah. And but how many people were involved? Was it? Um, I'm not exactly sure. I, I think initially I heard that there were multiple gunmen. And then the the reports I saw just this afternoon, they seem to be now saying one. Yeah. Right? So I don't know what's going on with that. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. one of them was killed in a shootout or or, or killed himself. I I don't know. We'll find out. But uh, he he was talking about, and his immediate response was, uh, well, this just shows, you know, and he talked about, like, moderates and centrists and are the problem and all this stuff and really? yeah yeah and and I and I said to him like well you know I know that my my students you know I I get a pretty big sample from my community and from my from teaching and things like that my my sense is that the vast majority of my muslim students and neighbors are liberal party voting moderate centrists they are. They have no interest whatsoever in the NDP or the conservative. They have no interest in like progressives or you know the either extremes of the political spectrum. Like they they f- seem to feel most safe um, going for mainstream kind of big tent parties, which makes sense. I mean, if I was uh, a member of a minority group, 
in any country, I would want to, <laughs> that's usually the safest mm-hmm. bet, right? Uh, but it's it seemed kind of fascinating to me that a lot of people automatically assumed that that this would that be, the moderates are the problem. Uh, no, that you could that you could score points because of this for either side. I mean, we've seen people all day. I think you you tweeted about that that people are you know a lot of people are trying to score points with this, which which seems to be the norm these days. It's like a a tragedy happens, well, and actually, immediately people like say. Well, uh, this proves that what I've been saying all along is mm-hmm. true, mm-hmm. you know, and it's and you can it can basically be anything almost. Well, I was sort of seeing actually on Twitter, you know, a lot of sort of politicians, American politicians and others were saying all the right things. Actually, they were, you know, saying that this is horrific, that, you know, this kind of intolerance has no place in the world and on and on. Um, because I think, well, partly it is true and and they probably believe that and it's also the thing that you have to say in the immediate aftermath um i i wasn't looking at what extremists were saying i'm just Mm -hmm. regular politicians and others um but what i said uh what i said on twitter today was that i expect that that'll probably change over the next few days that even the you know the people are sort of saying the right things today some of those people will be retrenching um you know in pretty short order that seems to be the way things go unfortunately um, but that's interesting that your friend was saying that, uh, what, I guess he was saying what, that people need to pick a side or. Yeah. That basically you can't, um, you have to, this basically what this tragedy demonstrates is that we need to all sort of rally Man, completely. Ramparts. Yeah. Ramparts. We all have to completely support like very, very progressive positions. And, and I don't think what is, yeah. <laughs> I don't think what people <laughs> realize is that there's this perverse dynamic at play, right? And where the you know extremists on both sides tend to feed feed each other's narratives. I mean, that's um, I, I don't know if you heard on Sam Harris's uh, you know it's been it's called Making Sense now, right? Yeah. Uh, his he had um, Renee, uh, what's her name? She's the FBI expert. No, uh, she's she's the like expert. yeah, she she basically she was headed up this inquiry where all the different social media platforms opened up their their, their books and things like that mm-hmm. and she looked into russian meddling in the in the election but also just in society in general she was on uh, sam harris for for an interview which was fascinating uh, but then she was on the other day joe rogan as well mm-hmm. and i listened to it this afternoon it's absolutely let's see if i can find her her name again. It's um, it's really really interesting. What was she saying? Interview. Today? Oh, uh, Renee DiResta. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was on 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 Tuesday, but she was talking about how uh, what if you look at the kinds of accounts that the Russians were setting up, it it's not as if they were just setting up kind of pro-Trump accounts where you have like like. Uh, a white guy in a MAGA hat holding a big fish on, you know, like, you know, like fake profile. That seems to be like the standard kind of MAGA hat thing with the fish all the time. It's weird. Uh, but so I think you were doing something on Facebook the other day about men with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's well, apparently it's like a thing. They call it like the Urban Dictionary has an entry for fish pick. Okay. And fish pick is like a dude holding a big fish. Like and wow, and it, it was such a common thing on dating apps that women were complaining about it. Like, what is it with these dudes like <laughs> like with their big fish, you know? But uh, 
anyway, it's it's like a it's like a thing. But so they were doing this. First of all, they were doing this in a big way starting um, in 2015, before before Trump came on the scene, right? Quite a bit before that. And what they focus on is division. Yeah. Right. So they would set up. It wasn't just like they would set up a pro-Trump thing. They would set up uh, pro-Hillary things. They had an LGBTQ site, like rainbow flag be decked site. They had lots and lots of anti-vax sites. They had Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter everything. Yeah. And they would fight with each other. Right. They would fight with each other like two fake accounts. And then all sorts of very prominent people were sucked into this. And, you know, when I listened to her first interview on Sam Harris, all, and I went and read the report, and everybody I know who I, because now they have, you can check Facebook, it's searchable, right? The timeline's all searchable now. Mm -hmm. So I went and looked to see which of my friends had shared um, articles and things like that from these fake Russian sites, and I contacted them. And told them, you know, you know that you actually shared like a lot of stuff oh. from uh, right. And it's interesting How to did see. People react. Um, the vast majority of people said, um, "Thank you, that's crazy." Uh, there was only only a few people, um, all of them like very progressive people, who said like that's fake news. Like the most like. The most right wing, you know, people of my family and friends and stuff like that, they were like, Thank you. Wow. I can't believe I, I'm going to go and like delete that. I'm going to be more careful in the future and make sure I check, check people over more. Mm -hmm. Like it was, uh, it was, it was only the kind of, um, yeah, it, it was only like certain people got very, and one person actually defriended me after I sent him. He was very wow. angry about that. You know, like he said, because he was What was very... he most angry about? The, the, the fact that you were suggesting that he passed on information? That well, because he's a real Black Lives Matter like activist mm -hmm. and he was embarrassed that like tons of the stuff he shared was from Russian he was embarrassed. created sites. Right. Oh. right. And that he'd been so easily played basically by well, this. But... There are a couple of things that I take from that. I mean, one is, you know, I, I just cannot believe that after, you know, three, four years of this kind of stuff that people continue to, um, to play along, right? Like that this idea that you have to sort of pick a side and then be, you know, sort of immutably that thing and, and, and buy into the whole story on that side. I mean, we know how much, we know how much, um, manipulation is going on. Right. And the other thing is I read that Masha Gessen book this, this year, um, the one about sort of, uh, Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, kind of leading up to oh, the future is history. Yes, isn't that such a messed oh. up book? It's yeah, we it's read it last summer. Though. Annalise and I, we read it we we went on a Masha Gessen kit. We did that, <laughs> the Man Without a Face, and then another one of her books. But yeah, that book was by far the best. Well, do you remember when she? Well, how could you not? I mean, she just talks about like the the sort of unbelievable propaganda, the way in which. I mean, they they knew how to do propaganda because they'd been doing it for a hundred years. Um, you know that under this in the Soviet Union, they were masters at propaganda and masters at actually going around the world and and um, you know causing or creating these kinds of scenarios on a actually on a smaller scale even than what they're doing now. But so so in the nineties and and you know after the Soviet Union, I mean, they still had all of these these skills and capabilities which they've only been building on. And they have this sort of, or at least the way she describes it, kind of these puppet masters, right? Yeah. Who are, who are high officials in the Kremlin, um, 
you know, some of Putin's most important people are just flat out, I don't know what you call them, metteur en scène, you know, uh, they're, they're creating this theater, um, both for domestic consumption in Russia, but also to sow discord and confusion around the world. Um, and there's such, it's so sinister. Yeah. But it's not a secret, right? Um, so I don't get how now in 2019 people can still be arguing about this stuff. I mean, sure, some of it's generated by ourselves. You know, it's not all Russian propaganda. But they taught us how to do it, and they're continuing to do it. And anybody who doesn't see that, well, I, I don't I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, I, I don't understand the, the, the psychology of that. Is it that, you know, is it sunk cost? Is that people just put too much of them? of themselves into um, affirming and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, pushing these ideas or, you know, what is it, John? Yeah, well, that's actually, that's exactly the question that, um, that Renee and um, Joe Rogan were talking about um, on the podcast I was listening to. And, and she said, you know, I think a lot of people, they just have this feeling that, if you're if you're a Trump supporter, um, you absolutely cannot acknowledge that the Russians were meddling in the election whatsoever. And she goes, you just can't because that somehow means that Trump's election was illegitimate in some way. And she goes, you know, I actually believe that uh, Trump, like Trump, won the election fair and square more or less. I think there was like funny business on both sides to some extent and like, you know, stacking the deck to some extent. Right. But I think ultimately um, he won and, and that's that. Uh, but at the same time, the Russians did like meddle in the election a great deal and we should pay attention to it and try and like guard against it. But a lot of people just don't want to, cause they're so heavily invested in it not being that way. But in terms of the, the deeper question that you're asking, that's that's a way, way deeper, more kind of philosophical question. And I yeah. think that has well, to do with cynicism, really. I mean, there's a kind of cynicism that you see in those, uh, those sort of Russian puppet master types mm -hmm. and that you see also in, in people like, you know, founder of the Proud Boys and in a certain kind of like 90s ironic culture where everything's just like like with a wink and always like kind of and you, you make fun of anybody who believes that, in anything. That right? was one of the the actually the big takeaways from the Masha Gessen book. Oh and, and there's also another book about Russia. It was um everything is nothing is true and everything is possible. I read that one last summer too. <laughs> oh my God. Every that I was mean, completely such a mind fuck. Yeah. I actually had to stop <laughs> reading that book that was one of those yeah, books where, where i would stop reading it yeah. and i would go and do like uh, like a bunch of research because so many things he says there it sounds insane you can't believe that what yeah. he's saying is actually true and then you go and look and it's actually all true everything he's saying like it's just the stories like about the gangster making a movie where he's lo <laughs> yeah. using live rounds oh, and they're actually having real fighting yeah. like <laughs> What? I went and saw clips of that movie. It's completely real. Like, yeah, I, I don't even know. 
But so you read, wow, you must be really depressed. You like? Oh, I am because I'm also reading Apple Bob School Life History now. Oh my god! Texting to you, and so you're just you're just like a it's death's just a full door. Yeah. So wh- why did you choose to quit smoking and read these books? <laughs> that seems like a terrible, terrible I need some plan. Balance. You need like, like, <laughs> like I like would have cigarettes. You should read like happy stuff if you're going to quit smoking. This I is know. all going to lead you to smoking. But it's also interesting though, John. Yeah. It is. It is. But but a lot of it is an assault on the idea of 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 meaning, of sincerity, the idea that anything uh, that, you know, and you see that. I see that even from people who are not particularly sinister, like mutual friends of ours, mm-hmm. where they're like, why vote? Voting's a waste of time. Democracy's a sham. There's no real difference between, like, Russia and here. The only difference <laughs> is, like, we just think that we're free. Well, that was another thing that that I came away with after having been involved in in that nomination campaign was just how um, how much so many people I know, uh, so, or at least so many people in my community in our community, uh, take for granted about the political process. Right? They either they either have a sort of cynical view of it, which is oh, what difference does it make whether I vote or not? And you know, the the parties really aren't that different. And you know, how does politics affect my life anyway? And I'm doing my own thing and you know, I'm waiting for, I don't know what, waiting for some sort of new world order that's just going to happen by itself and everything's going to be great if they just carry on recycling. Or I, Anyway, maybe yeah. I'm, I, I've, I've imbibed some of the cynicism yeah. in some ways. But, um, but so, yeah, either they're sort of, you know, some of them are cynical. Um, others are just, uh, I mean, they just sort of think that things will just carry on as they are, right? I mean, things are just ticking along okay. I don't need to be personally involved. I don't really need, you know, my my individual vote isn't going to make that much of a difference. I mean, I think, you know, lots of people feel that way. Um, and to some degree, it's true until you reach a tipping point and then it's not true anymore, right? So people mm-hmm. do have to be vigilant. I mean, they don't have to read, uh, they don't have to read what we've been reading this past year. <laughs> I mean, that's taking it a bit far. Although somebody's got to. Um, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, but I think that there, there, you know, there is always that danger if if you sort of take things too much for granted or allow cynicism to kind of rule the way in which you, you know, you're involved in politics, um, or take democracy for granted. I mean, this idea that we actually can go out and we have the right, if not the obligation, the duty to go out and vote and decide who's going to rule over us, who who we are choosing to give that responsibility to. I mean, how can you? not be amazed at that system and how can you not cherish it and want to protect it right yeah anyway i think you know a lot of people actually just don't think about it um and then a lot of people think that things should be perfect and if they're not perfect they want no part of it that you know that's the other thing is a sort of super idealist well why should i vote for the liberal party they're just a bunch of you know crybabies or liberal this or, you know, or big business, you know, they're just a front for big business or whatever point of view you have on it. Or, or why should I vote for the conservatives? They're just this or, you know, the NDP that. So where was I going with this? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it, it just goes to the question of like, are right, you so willing want, to compromise they or they yeah. perfection? Right. So, so they're all the same. Um, I'm not going to vote until I get to have my Bernie Sanders or, you know, something like that. Um, and that's assuming Bernie Sanders or your version is going to be Mr. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, 
well, guess what? I mean, politics carries on whether you're involved in or not, whether you're voting or not, whether you're choosing to be interested in it or not. Um, so, you know, politics is going to happen to you. It's going to happen to your neighborhood. It's going to happen to your country. So, yeah. so do something about it. Yeah. No, there is yeah. really, there is really no choice, but, uh, but there is this, I don't know, for, for what I find the most of the people that I know, there is a kind of, there's, there's two things there's, and I guess they kind of dovetail in many ways, but there's a kind of cynicism, which is like, oh, everything, everything, and which sort of folds into a false equivalency. And it seems to me like the only check on that, that I see, for instance, like where I, where I work, the, a regular check on that is that there's a, a good percentage of the students in my classroom who are recent immigrants to the United States or are um, exchange students because we have a very large um, sort of foreign exchange program mm -hmm. at John Abbott. So I would like, for instance, when the cartel like murders were at their absolute worst in Mexico, um, especially in places like Juarez and stuff like that in Northern, um, there were anybody who had enough money to get their kid out of Mexico to go to boarding school somewhere other than Mexico would do it because people sure, were getting sure. kidnapped all the time. And so I would have, uh, and I, I do still do not quite as many, but I would have like in my class, like exchange students from Mexico, people from Austria, people from Japan, China, all different places. And then plus the usual contingent of kind of recent immigrants to Canada in the class. And I find for myself and for other teachers in my department as well, those students are just wonderful because they're such a good check on bullshit. So if you have like a, a teacher, I mean, she's retired now, but there was a colleague of mine who loved to just say, talk about like the patriarchy is everywhere. She would say there's really no difference between Saudi Arabia and Canada. <laughs> and they, she would make all these like falsical, you know, nothing's changed since, you know, the last couple of like, One of those people, right? Just false equivalencies across... There would be people in the class who were from Saudi Arabia and they would say, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's completely not true. I can tell you a bunch of really, really clear ways in which yeah. that is not true. Right. And, and likewise, when uh, another one of my colleagues who, who's still there right now, um, he, he would say, I, I heard about this secondhand from students, but he would just say, well, you know, the, the police are fascist here and, you know, there's really no difference between, there'd be Mexican students going, do you have any idea what a corrupt police force actually looks like? Like, do you have, and would say, you know, just as a reality check that, uh, yeah, we've got problems, we've got plenty of problems and we have so many things we have to do better on, but, um, there is, I don't know, it seems to me like, especially people who who write, you know, people like you, people who write, people who teach, they seem to slide into these kinds, kinds of, kinds of, kinds of, of uh, these, this false equivalencies and the cynicism much more easily than, than other people, it seems. I, I don't know why that is the case. I mean. People who write? Or people that. Um, that are, you know, what they call like the chattering classes. Like they seem to slip into these kinds of false equivalencies more. I hear it more from people in academia than I do than, for mm -hmm. instance, from my family members who are, you know, working in lots of different fields and doing different things. I, I don't hear them engaging in that kind of 
I wonder lazy, if it's, yeah. lazy false equivalency and cynicism as much. Yeah, I would, I would definitely call, um, call those kinds of false equivalencies lazy, uh, sort of intellectually lazy and dishonest, honest, frankly. Um, but I'm not sure that it's cynicism always, you know, I think that a lot of people really just, um, assume and believe that we can have a perfect society. And as long as it's imperfect, it's fallen, right? It's, it's sinful and it needs to be redeemed. So it, so they don't really look at the degree necessarily to which it is sinful um, or problematic. Uh, it's just bad and uh, and that's it, right? So um, is it cynical? Not necessarily. I mean, I know a lot of really, you know, good-hearted, lovely people who who think that way. Um, and uh, I don't I don't necessarily hold it against them. I think it's a kind of naivete. It's sort of maybe not really understanding how the world works, maybe not having traveled that much, um, living within a bubble. You know, like this this again, this community that, that this community that we're in, uh, again, a cosmopolitan, generally pretty interesting bunch of people. Um, but but very protected and very kind of padded, right? They yeah. they sort of view themselves as uh, you know, a lot of them are, a lot of our friends are kind of very left wing and, and utopian and really want to make the world a better place, but they don't necessarily know the world that well. Yeah. Right? So I, I think that's, that's part of it. Well, I mean, the, the enduring popular uh, popularity of, of communism and Marxism is like a classic example of that. Like, I, I mean, right now, I can't even have any more arguments. I, like I, I, Right now, where I work, we have a big display case for our department. And right now, I think I, I posted a picture of it, right? Like, right now on the display case is a, it looks like a shrine, like a like a shrine to, to Jesus or the Virgin Mary or like some saint to Marx. And it's all kind of pictures of Marx and, and books on Marxism and stuff like that in the display case. That's the whole thing, Wait, right? who made this? Um, just people in my department, but, but I mean, who did it is, is not, is well, not, it's not as important. Names, so. <laughs> it's not as important as the fact that it just seems like a completely yeah. normal thing for a humanities department to do. Right? Right, right. And it's not, it's not like seen as being controversial in any way. Whereas if you were to try and, uh, and, and the thing is, is like anybody who actually studies political history or intellectual history of the last 150 years, like Marx's ideas have been responsible for killing hundreds of millions of people. Like it's been an absolute complete disaster disaster uh, trying to implement that in any way. It's been really really horrible. But if you were to try and kind of make the whole departmental display case be devoted to um to Nazism and have like Hitler in there or have like, you know, fascist ideas and say, well, you know, we've never really tried fascism. Like <laughs> we, we've never really tried those, those were, you know, those were fake ones. Like if, if you tried to do that, uh, no, nobody would be okay with that. Right. Um, even if you tried to, let's say, make the display case all about like have the Bible in there or the the Quran or something like that. That would not be that would be not cool, right? But, um, but yeah, but of course, I mean, everybody will say yeah. But the ideas of Marx were, you know, his his intention was to create a world in which you know everybody could lead decent, dignified lives, right? Versus some of these other 
um, ideologies, which had somewhat different aims. But, but yes, um, yeah. I mean, I still, uh, God, I I talk with you know I have so many friends and family members who want to have that conversation all the time especially about capitalism and the evils of capitalism. And it doesn't matter how many different ways, you know, we tell them, yeah, but we're living in the most prosperous, we're, you know, the most prosperous societies that the world has ever known, yeah. lifting hundreds of thousands of people. We've never had less hunger now than we have now. We've never had, yeah, I mean. It's... And more democracy and, and all of the rest of it. Um, and more social justice, right? Mm -hmm than ever before in the history of humanity, except for maybe like tiny little matriarchal societies on, you know, delightful Pacific islands, perhaps 150 years. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Maybe. But, you know. Um, and people will sort of, like a lot of people I know will concede all of that. But then almost immediately revert back to that first principle. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> capitalism sucks and we need, you know, some version of... Uh, left-wing sort of uh, socialist utopia. Yeah. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. There's a, a wonderful book I read a few years ago. It's like a huge monster book. And it's, it's really, really good. It's called The Imminent Utopia. It's by, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. He's He teaches in the sociology department at McGill. He's a really brilliant He's uh, Dutch. He's from Amsterdam, I think. But okay. um, I, I'm blanking on his name. But anyway, it's a really, really good book. But one of the things he does in the book is he he was like a hardcore Marxist back in the day, but he eventually kind of fell away from the faith, and now he's uh, like a huge critic of of Marxism and of, of ideology in general. Actually, he's just like a very kind of, you know he's a fascinating guy. But one of the things he does in the book is he he unpacks the notion um, first of all that somehow Marx was pure, and it's just as the uh, so implementation of his ideas. He says, no, that's actually not true. If we look at his, at all of his writings and his letters and diaries and his, no, he was very, very comfortable with mass violence happening to achieve these ends. Very, very comfortable with it. So right. blaming Lenin or somebody else for all of the, the bad stuff and saying, disingenuous. Like, is, is totally, totally disingenuous. It's actually, it's very much implicit in the ideas that this, that this would happen. But then he goes much farther than that. And uh, one of the things that many of our friends in this neighborhood will say is, well, you know, yes, okay, there's been excesses and there's been problems, but a lot of the things that we love about our society from like the 40-hour work week to the weekend to like uh, all these like benefits, these have come because of Marxism and that this has had like created more socially just world. He goes through those claims one by one oh. by one from country to country to country and demonstrates that this is actually not true at all, that this was all happening with uh, with like the workers' rights movements and largely through various social gospel movements like coming from Protestantism mm -hmm. and that um, these people pushing for these reforms were around before Marx. Uh, during Marx and after Marx. And in fact, very often Marxists 
like worked against these reforms. They worked against them because in Canada. They were collaborationist or something. Yeah, they said we want to. Their their thing was we want to heighten the contradictions of capitalism. So we don't want capitalism to work. And they didn't like the fact that you know capitalism with a human face and all these various things would make capitalism work smoothly. So they actively campaigned against a lot of these social justice reforms yeah. for workers in the UK, in France, in the United States, in all sorts of Northern European because countries. Because the, the, the sort of received wisdom about kind of the rise of the unions and that sort of like the, you know, workers' unions through the early 20th century was that these were sort of hotbeds of socialist, or if, if the workers themselves weren't, you know, um, sort of uh, didn't have elaborate intellectual apprehension about about socialism certainly they were kind of motivated by or run by or inspired by marxist ideas no isn't that sort of what we always well what he what he sort of goes through is that no actually that um that these he says you would have had you would have had all of these things happening without marx without marxism and if anything uh marxism got in the way often and was yeah. was a was a reactionary force, and it was a reactionary force, um, you know, for many different reasons. But a lot of it had to do with he goes. There were some ex- like exceptions, like for instance, the the Common Front against the Popular Front, right, where the mm-hmm. the socialists and the centrists and and liberals and communists all came together to fight against fascism, the rise of the right. Right, this happened in a number of uh, Leon Blum in France in the mid '30s and things like that. So there, there were these like uh, times when they all came together to fight against a common foe. But that was the exception, not, not the, rule. the rule. Like most of the time, it was them kind of struggling against social reform because we don't want it to work well, right? right? In the same like the because, Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, right? Yes, exactly. You don't want it because if the system is working well. Then that then that just sort of is preventing the it, it the revolution. The system to yeah, so on. you want yeah. the system to be as terrible as possible because oh that gosh. will like yeah, which is very very perverse. I mean, it's very very perverse. But it's you know if if you are in some way trying to, and Mashigessen makes this point right. If you're trying to undermine civil society, if you're trying to, then what do you do? Right, you support people on the extremes that question the whole legitimacy of of the framework. Like that's one of the things in her book that's just absolutely wacky how they will choose these far right religious like crazy people and support them and like allow them to be uh, like a thing and then they will choose these people uh, which she benefited from for a while. They'll choose like some kind of very far lefty progressive group but they'll make sure that they are all from moscow preferably gay and lesbian so that they're very easy to other right yeah. like like oh those coastal elites right think they're all that calling us deplorables like they'll make sure that they're like some sort of easily othered like mm-hmm. and so that way you keep uh you keep kind of both ends of the the political spectrum you gain the system so that you seem reasonable yeah Oh God! The, I mean, all of that stuff that they've been doing in Russia for the last twenty years is just mind blowing. There's so much. I mean, so, these political parties that have you know risen and fallen. Um, so many of the political parties that have had their brief moment in the sun in Russia were actually devised by the Kremlin, funded by the Kremlin. 
<laughs> just wild. Manned by people from yeah. the Kremlin. And yeah, and then there were sort of protagonists and antagonists, and they were set up against each other. And and then the other really crazy one is the um, the uh, what is it? The pedophile. The right. They all went crazy. They they decided that that all homosexuals oh, were yes, pedophiles. Yes, and it, yeah. And they decided that that was going to be sort of like the bête noire of Russian society, yeah. which would allow you know, which would allow them to go and do all of their you know, oligarchic stuff on the side while everybody was busy running around looking for pedophiles, um, yeah. which resulted in, you know, sort of mass persecution of of homosexuals. Um, and that's that's been going on now for a couple of decades. I mean, just the most bizarre scenario. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's a good way, you know, it's, you know, we've talked about this before. This is something that to some extent, obviously way, way watered down, but to some extent, political parties in North America have done, especially in the United States, the have United done States this. Is, yeah. They they will sort of choose. Um, you'll have like the Republican Party very much becoming kind of a corporatist party, which it, it wasn't always like that. Mm-hmm. And you'll have the Democratic Party doing the same thing. And so the way that they differentiate themselves is on these like social issues, like the, the prayer issues. in classrooms or like the abortion issue or, um, you know, some like the war on Christmas or on the other end, like the Democrats will focus like Obama, you know, even as he's bombing Pakistan like crazy and, and doing all this stuff and not closing down, you know, you know, these like prisons and things like that and, and selling things off to wall street and to pharmaceutical, he'll go hard on, let's say on like trans issues and things like that. And so these, Issues, some of them totally legitimate. Kind of obfuscate what, what yeah, some of them are really legitimate. Some of them are uh, completely total bullshit. Like that, you know. But they they serve to sort of uh, distract people from the fact that sure. your message is actually really corporatist and mainstream, and is not like there's not a big difference between you and your opponent, and so you need to focus uh, attention on this, right? I was uh, yeah. I mean, you know. Looking at the United States, I mean, what I'm seeing, and, and and I'm not alone in this with the Republican Party. I mean, they they really sort of created, you know, obviously they've created created a monster or several monsters. I mean, the whole the, the abortion thing and and many other issues. But but I mean, I guess the difference is or has been up until recently. Hopefully, well, I think things are changing under Trump. They're getting worse. But like in Russia, they were not just manufacturing issues; they were actually manufacturing parties that would then go and prosecute these issues right um but but i mean it, i can't help but look at what's happening under donald trump and feel like he's really taking it to the next level i mean he or if not he personally people around him people who are influencing him um are really taking a page from the russian playbook um i mean so i i feel like it you know, some of them are literally having people whispering in their ears from from overseas about this stuff, uh, because it's it's not just wedge issues now. It's just flat out lies. Right. I mean, yeah. not to say that there weren't lies before. Of course, there always have been. But it's it really has taken on cynical proportions in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. And I, I actually really do think um, is a watershed moment. And I think that we have to be ultra vigilant um now more than ever yeah well it's i think you know a lot of this is kind of coming to a head in a strange way i don't know if 
I, I don't know if everybody's aware of it yet, but it seems like that's where it's converging on with this whole scandal that's happening with uh, rich people paying like millions of dollars to get their kids into into colleges. Like you, you've heard about this whole yeah, like yeah, you know, college cheating scandal, right? And I think there's there could be some very do you Good. think this might actually bring people together? And make, I think to there's some. I think somewhere? there are some interesting things coming out of this, because it's it's uh, it's getting people to talk about uh, that, like the truth matters, maybe, right? And like, and certain institutions should be perhaps meritocratic, and it shouldn't. They shouldn't be able to game them uh, just by because. As soon as you get a lot of people, which is what you have right now, it's quite fascinating. You have people from CNN to Democracy Now to Fox News to Breitbart who are all in agreement that mm. the college system should not be gameable by people with lots of money, that you shouldn't be able to game that system. Well, if you can get a lot of people to talk about that and to agree on that, Quite a few interesting things follow from that. Like, because if that shouldn't, if that institution, if those institutions should not be gameable by the rich, well, then maybe, maybe our elections shouldn't be gameable by the rich. You're very optimistic. Maybe, John. you know, maybe like other things shouldn't be, <laughs> you know, because it, 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 it's important. I remember my grandfather telling me this. Um, he said how, like, back in the day, uh, there in the British military, you could just, buy your way you could buy an office mm -hmm. right so some most people if you grew up in a i don't know from a farming family and you enlisted you would have to work your way up through basically merit and ask ass kissing and you know whatever the normal way you'd have to work your way up the ladder and so some people uh, made their way up to a particular rank by through effort right merit um then there were other people that if you had a lot of money, you could just buy like a captainship or buy and you would get the medals and the uniform mm -hmm. and you would be parachuted into this particular rank, even though you had not done anything. Often you didn't know anything about the military. Never swabbed the decks. Never... You've never done anything. You actually just don't know anything about like fighting or the military or anything. You could just buy your position. And he said they ran into a lot of problems with this. Because when they were actually fighting, you know, colonial wars and things like that, these people would be mm -hmm. a fucking disaster, right? As you would expect, because they're incompetent. They're totally, totally incompetent. And they would make huge mistakes and they would lose battles and they would, you know, they literally blow up ships by accident and you know, all these horrible things. So they did uh, a lot of, a lot of kind of uh, they, reforms within the military and then suddenly the military started working really, really well. And so then they started uh, saying, well, maybe we should do this with our civil service too. And so they did massive reforms with the civil service mm -hmm. and made it very, very meritocratic. And so now if you were rich, you could do what people have been doing in China for thousands of years, right? If you're rich, you can afford to have like really amazing tutors that'll like tutor your kids to prepare yeah. for the exams. So yeah, you're going to have an advantage um, for sure, right? You're going to have, you know, privilege as they put put it now, right? But you can't buy, you can't buy the score. You still have to write the exam. You still have to write the exam. You yeah. can't, uh, you know, with this called cheating scandal, 
you know, this guy, he was Singer, right? His last name, like Singer or something like that. Oh, yeah. I think so, yeah. And like he would um, pay off, he would pay off the, uh, like, the proctors to actually just go afterwards and write the correct scores in. And if he couldn't pay off the proctor, he would, he had, like, SAT test expert test takers that would go and like impersonate your kid. Apparently there was one main guy. Who yeah, who's like an adult guy. Yeah. Like like a balding man who would somehow pull it off to improve shows how little they're paying attention. But he would impersonate your your kid and take yeah. the test for the kid and he was so good at it that he could basically get whatever score you wanted on the SAT. I how much he got paid. Uh, but these these parents were willing to pay there was one they they paid four hundred thousand dollars or something to have their kids' face like photoshopped onto like some whatever it was water. Bomb. Oh no, that <laughs> like, was that was only part of that operation. It was a four hundred thousand dollar bribe to the coach. Right. She was the uh, the the coach of I think the women's rowing team at mm. Yale or something like that, and that was just four hundred thousand just to her. So there was more money involved. Oh, it would have been more. But yeah, they were photoshopping in kind of your kids shot into like, you know, on an erg machine and scoring the winning goal, the team, like it's like totally different. And then they would they would pay off the coach to sort of uh, advocate on behalf of the students saying we really need to get him or we need to get get her in. It's going to be a fantastic uh, player, I want this person. So then yeah. they get in and they're immediately benched and they will never play for the four years they're there. Right. But yeah, just if, if people are willing to pay $400,000 plus, right, to get their kid into one of these Ivy League universities, um, I mean, presumably with an Ivy League degree, uh, you, you know, you can end up making hundreds of thousands, if not millions more than people with degrees from other universities, or at least that's the idea, I think, right? But, but still, if you have, $400,000 plus to invest in your kids uh, just to get your kid into the school, never mind actually paying for, for the tuition. Why not just take that money and invest it for your kid, right? Because with compound interest, if, if, the, if the issue is money, if the issue is, um, uh, you know, earning power for your kid down the road, like there's probably a way easier way to, you know, to make them wealthy. Which makes me think it's not about money. Right. Yeah. No, I don't think like it these, is. These I don't think it about, is about earning power at all. It's just prestige for them. Yeah. For them, it's bragging rights at the barbecue. It's to be able to say, My oh, you know, Tristan Yale. just got into Harvard and oh, Indy's going to Yale. It's just to be able to tell your friends like and to get the sticker and, you know, say like my kid is at Princeton. It's 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 bragging rights because the, the Daily had their their podcast, the New York Times podcast. Mm -hmm. They had um, a wonderful thing on this. I think it was yesterday, bribing your way into college or something like that. And they said that actually, if you crunch the numbers for the for the the really wealthy in the United States, going to a top college does not Make increase a your difference. no. It makes no difference in their future. Um, earning potential or anything. It has like no appreciable difference. In fact, wow. some degrees, uh, it seems like it might have like actually decrease in some ways, I mean, which I find fascinating. But so 
I mean, if you are from the lower class or lower middle class or even kind of middle middle class and you go to a top place, um, absolutely that that is going to, for the vast majority of people, that's going to help them sure. economically for the rest of their rest mm-hmm. of their lives. Uh, but for the, yeah, for the kind of people that were the paying super, for these super. services, mm. it's not going to, so what they are really doing is trying to, yeah, it's it's breaking rights. It's a prestige thing. So what thing. does that tell us? Is that is this the apotheosis of the meritocratic society or, you know, <laughs> that people will go to such lengths um, for, uh, you know, for one of these for for this kind of bragging rights, or I've lost my freedom. <laughs> well, no, they will. They absolutely will. Yeah. The uh, we just got some visitors. Hey, <laughs> Andrew. And- <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi. Howdy. Howdy. Uh, so yeah, no, I think it is. They absolutely will. They will pay that money. They're willing to pay that money just for the the bragging rights, which is. Yeah, that is really fascinating. I mean, like, and also, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the clip that's been going around like crazy. The one of them who's a she's a YouTuber with like two million followers, and she's an Instagram influencer. She's the daughter no, of no. of one of those those um, actresses. I think the Full House one. Okay, yeah. Are they, but and there's this so it's not hilarious this huge youtube channel with two million subscribers. yeah but there's this hilarious thing where she's talking about how yeah well i've got a lot of modeling jobs and so i'm gonna try and maybe squeeze in some class time but <laughs> you know that i'm really not into school that much and like this is like on <laughs> and she's oh talking God. about she's gonna be on the and when the news came she was actually on the yacht with like the president of the university Oh my god! Yeah, with like like hobnobbing with the, uh, yeah. So it's so, there's something else. There's something else going on there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know what it is. I mean, what do you what do you think it is? I think it must be incredibly humiliating for the children of these people whose names have been published. Honestly, I mean, that really struck me. How you know, like how do these kids feel? Like, are we okay with? Well, some of them knew. Some of them apparently did had no idea that their parents were doing this. So some of them actually showed up i was reading through the report yesterday and like some of them actually showed up to college and you know were called to go and see like a coach or something like that and said so we're okay with you not having they're like what they like they had Hmm. no idea that their parents had did this right Right? now those ones i suspect are going to be really really probably shocked that your your parents thought you were such a dumbass that like they're like we need to grease the wheels to get but junior also, I in mean, i mean what do they do then i guess they have to leave the school or you know are they going to be publicly shamed by their classmates anyway i mean you know maybe this is yeah i don't i don't know i mean i know that the from what i've seen so far the universities have said that um they're going to look into the matter for people that are already there and they're going to reject anybody that was associated with it that has applied uh, are rejected. But now you've got the other thing is there's class action lawsuit. Uh, a few of them on the class part of action. Who didn't get in. Yeah, class action mm-hmm. lawsuit on the part of like parents and students that didn't get in, sure. saying that they didn't get a fair right. They didn't get a fair try right, and yeah. this was an unfair process. Which I mean that is. That's amazing. I mean, but it, it's also it's also crazy because there's already, if you're wealthy in the United States, there's already 
a number of ways legitimately like that you can get into university. Like I remember just my own experience with it when I applied to, when I applied to Harvard for grad school, there was, um, there were basically like three different, if I remember correctly, there were three different tiers in most programs. And there was, uh, so let's say if they were going to be accepting into the, for argument's sake, like for the, the philosophy program or the history program would be accepting 24 um, positions, right, into like new graduate students into the PhD program. They would have eight of those positions would be full paying customers. So you're paying completely, which is massive. It's like a lot of money, right? Then there would be like eight that were getting like half ride, mm-hmm. right? And then there would be eight that are getting like a full right. ride completely. Um, now, depending upon which you which box you tick, like I can afford to pay, I can afford to pay half, or I can't afford to pay, the competition for the eight spots of getting completely paid is very, very, very stiff, as you might imagine, yeah. right? And then it goes down from there. Now, of course, it's not like it's easy to get into that program for anybody, but it's way, way easier. If you're gonna, if you can pay the whole thing, yeah. right? So I got in. Um, I got into like they. I mean, Harvard was already was like my. I think it was like my number seventh or eighth choice for what I wanted to do. So I my first choice was Johns Hopkins, was where I ended up going. But like they let me in with like a half half ride. Like they mm-hmm. said, we'd like to give you for one of these spots. And I said, well. I can't afford half of that. <laughs> like I can't yeah. afford like ten percent of that. So no, but I I've already accepted somewhere else anyway. But so anyway, point being, there's already if you have lots of money, there's already lots of ways to uh, well, just so, the very fact that you can afford to go to an Ivy League college. I mean, you know, and it's not you you the student who has the money; it's really your parents. And so you know, and there's the legacy. Right. I mean, everybody talks right. about affirmative action like, oh, they're letting in, you know, they're letting in people like from various groups and stuff like that. Actually, the biggest affirmative action legacy is students. legacy students. So yeah. if your parents went to that school, you have a huge advantage. So lots of like C students yeah. get into, you know, top, top schools because they're one of their parents went there, their grandparents went there and stuff like that. So it, it's it's just amazing that a system that is already giving a great deal of advantage to uh, willing people to get into these places if they want to, um, you know, this is yet another, right? And what, what he referred to, Singer referred to it as the, the, side, the door. side door. Yeah, there's right? back do- the front door, the back door, and then the side door. Yeah, and so the back door would be like legacy things. Yeah. It would be your... Your mom says, I'll buy you a new building. <laughs> and, right, like, right. and suddenly you get in or various things like that. And then the side door is just a, a whole other. I mean, there. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. It's which is part of the reason why I actually haven't been paying that close, to be honest, close attention to the story, because in a way it's sort of, well, I mean, there already were so many ways to, if not game the system, essentially, you know, money, money talked, right. When it came to these, these, um, these few places in Ivy League universities available to, to students. So, yes, this is sort of maybe emblematic of something. Maybe it's the, the nail in the coffin or 
bringing it to a head or something like that. But from personally, I just I don't feel that emotionally invested in the story. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so we just scrapped that whole. Thing. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I get that. I know a lot of I know a lot of people who are not. They don't think it's uh, a really big deal, and I, I get that. I, it just seems like there's people that feel like there's got to be some institutions that are still meritocratic that is still actually where yeah. where it's a, a fair fight or close to a fair fight you know and so when they well, hear but that's been in doubt when it comes to ivy league universities for quite some time because of all the affirmative action questions and right so it has yeah it's not as though this comes as a as a complete shock or oh my god these you know these perfect ideal places that were beautiful meritocracies are suddenly cast into doubt. I mean, that was kind of... Yeah, I know that was. But but my best case scenario, I think, is that this could perhaps lead to something similar to what happened like in the 1950s and 60s where you had uh, suddenly with the Cold War you know, heating up and the competition with the Soviet Union and kind of the race to try and get to the moon first and things like that and the arms race... Suddenly, it became really, really important to actually be competent and actually to be smart. So all these places like McGill, for instance, that mm. had Jewish quotas because they said, well, if we if we just like if we just let in the people with the best marks, we're going to be oh, over. We're yeah, all, we're going to be overrun by like by Jews and we're going to be like suddenly they realized, wow, it's actually really important that we have the best people and people who yeah. actually know what they're doing in those places. And so they started just stressing excellence and competence as opposed to, and also I think to some extent, as opposed the, to pedigree and yeah, I mean, stuff. to some extent, I think also things like the quiz show scandal fed right. into that. Do you remember like where there was that most popular game show in the United States? I remember the quiz United, show, the movie. Yeah. The, the movie based show. on it. And like, so the quiz show, the most common, like popular game show. And it was popular in a way that, nothing could be popular now yeah, because to imagine. yeah they only had like a few channels yeah. and only a few like programs on so quiz show was one of the programs everybody everybody watched, watched. and they were really shocked oh, the good old days when we would all watch yeah. the same stuff right? <laughs> exactly at the same time yeah right now it's like spoiler alert don't tell me what happened on game of thrones so it used to be i remember like i had some friends who would watch a show just so that they could be able to talk about it with friends at school mm. and they would watch it for that reason. But now you can't talk about it at, at school because everybody's watching it. Uh, spoiler alert. Don't tell me what happens. And so you don't even have the common experience. Yeah. It's annoying. But and of course we're not watching the same news. We're not watching, we're not watching it. the news. We're consuming yes, it. And getting it in different, uh, different ecos. Yeah. It's a different world. But so the quiz show was yeah. uh, for listeners who don't know about this. It was the, the most popular show and the guy who was winning it was this New York Jew who was winning the show. He was going really, really high up. And the producers of the show thought, this does not, we don't like the optics of this at all. And so there was this pedigreed, like kind of waspy uh, New England type who... Played by Rafe Fiends, I think. Yeah, he was like, and he, he I think he was like a taught like literature at Princeton or something like that. And he had like that patrician old school accent that they have in old movies, the way that the kind of Northeastern elite that used to run the country, the way they talked. And, and 
uh, they wanted him to win. They're like, that's the guy we want to win. And so they actually started slipping him the answers to Mm -hmm. the questions on the show. And even with him being slipped the, and I mean, he was not an idiot. He was like a really smart guy for himself. But even with him slipping him the answers, this Jewish guy from New York was still like was keeping up with him. And they went all the way to the, the final the final episode where so what happened again in the end was he un- unmasked? Uh, he was unmasked, so he won. But then it came out that he was being slipped the right. questions the whole time, and it was this massive scandal, and it was you know really really big deal. But I think there was a number of things like that which I think reinforced the idea that uh, competence actually matters, mm. that uh, that merit matters, that there should be. Like, we actually want the people in charge, the people running things to know what they're doing. We actually want uh, that stuff. And so if you ever want to see the perfect illustration of competence mattering, I just went to see when I was in Washington, I saw um, Apollo 11. Have you seen it? No. So it's it's you know, it's the story of the 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 first trip to the moon. And um, and we've seen clips of it. You know, we all know the story. But it's it's I think it was an IMAX. And it was. um they basically tell the story from a few hours before liftoff to about two weeks after they get back. Cause when the astronauts came back, they had to spend a couple of weeks in quarantine cause they were worried about, you know, possible moon bugs. Yeah. But, um, but for the first, you know, the first large bit of the film is uh, the astronauts getting readied in their suits and getting into the rocket. Um, and, but we see a lot of the, I don't know how many thousands, I guess, of mostly men, although there were also some women, interestingly enough, um, with their their pencil and paper, <laughs> you know, doing their calculations at, I guess it was at Cape Canaveral, um, uh, just prior to liftoff, right? It's just all of these guys just sitting there in their white shirts. <laughs> They're like, you know, short sleeve white shirts at these long tables putting their 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 efforts together their best efforts to make this unbelievably difficult thing happen right to send this ship out past earth's orbit and all the way to the moon and then all the way back safely with all the three guys on the incredible <laughs> but it took you know there were just i mean nowadays so much you know we have all this computing power in those days they didn't it just took human beings working together, um, brilliant human beings working together to make this happen. And you just sort of see it, it's just like the sea of faces of guys just, you know, madly scribbling on paper. And it's, uh, it's I don't know, it's, I, I, I find it incredibly inspiring. Right? You know what I find, you know what, it's also it was just sort of a ironic. Bunch of smart you know what those people, people were called? Computers. <laughs> <laughs> they were actually called computers. Yeah. That was like, and so whenever people say like, oh, automation's not going to take my job. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> like a computer originally yeah. referred to a person. An actual Somebody person. who thought that a machine couldn't replace his job or her right. job. Actually, well, her job oh, but mostly. that's a cynical thing. Anyway, the, the point yeah. being, right, is that um, people are, can be really smart and can yeah. do amazing things. And it's beautiful. Well, even you see, if you've seen with the Boeing Apollo thing, 11. right? The, with the, all the crazy stuff happening with Boeing. Yeah. And with these planes crashing. And now it's it's come out that there have been plenty of other pilots that have had the same problem with that plane. Right. But the reason why those planes didn't go down 
it's really fascinating. It's because of exactly what you're talking about, competence. The They would be going up, and it's, if I understand correctly, it's a leveling mechanism mm. that they put in within the planes, which if it feels like something's wrong, it like pulls the nose down like a lot, right? Well, experienced pilots who trust their skill and their competence, when they would see the plane doing this, they'd be like, whoa. And they would immediately switch off the autopilot and go into manual right? and take it, right? So the, they think actually that, two planes that went down and crashed, it's because you had people in the, they're looking at the black boxes and stuff like that now, but they think it's that you had pilots who were inclined to trust the the machine and, well, it's saying you should do this, so it must be right, right? So yeah. the kind of person where, I mean, to take a sort of hilarious example, when, when GPS was just starting, I think it was MapQuest or something like that mm, was one of the first ones. Maybe. Uh, we... We had a situation where Annalisa and I were driving to a wedding. It was in in Delaware, if I remember correctly. But we were driving along. Um, so basically, we get to this this route that goes along the ocean, right? Like right along the, the ocean. And the place that we had to go to, surprise, surprise, was to turn right to turn west, right? <laughs> like to turn Into left. The water. Like we're driving north mm-hmm. uh, oh, along mm-hmm. uh, like something that's going along the Atlantic Ocean. And so then we had to turn left to go to the place where the wedding was happening. Uh, but the MapQuest thing said turn right. <laughs> <laughs> and if we turned right, yeah. if we had like just blindly, I don't know, maybe if we were in like uh, an autonomous like vehicle or something like self-driving or if it's vehicle, dark and, you're really dark, and we're just like obeying blindly what the yeah. instrument says. At that point, we would have driven through a short parking lot and off a cliff, oh, like on down to the rocks oh, of the ocean. But and so we saw it, it was telling us like go go east on you know this road, turn turn yeah. right and drive for you know whatever like. A quarter of a mile or half a mile. And so we're like, we saw the ocean. We're like, no, 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 no. So it what's must the, be so left. What's the moral of this story that there's there's still hope for humanity and we don't have to worry too much about AI because really human ingenuity and can't do. Well, I, I think it, it, it's it's good that we have people that still know how how things work and can still do the calculations if the machine breaks down and can still do some of they they don't are not completely in this like helpless cyborg way like um they need to have like they can't do anything without the machine that would be the well that would be the danger i would i would suspect just to that john (laughs) (laughs) so what other i mean what other i know you're still like processing all of this stuff but what other kind of things have you gleaned from your uh, your sort of love affair with your brief love affair with with politics, running a political campaign. Like um, how... To call it a love affair <laughs> <laughs> to be a little bit more romantic than the situation called for. But um, what else did I learn, John? Um, I mean, because I, I I participated to some extent. You not, did. Nothing like you. You not as much as you, but I I participated and I came away from it. You were um, a little di- you were a little distraught. Perturbed. I was I was I was distraught just because I didn't realize I I didn't realize the full extent of how gameable the system is. 
I mean, I always knew that the system was to some extent how gameable. Would you, but I didn't... How I didn't, did you take away that it was gameable from what happens? Well, it seems to me that... And, I, you know, I don't think this is hope, you know, hopelessly idealistic. I think this is just pretty straightforward, actually. I think, like, if you're going to have, uh, like, a very large uh, geographically, like, a big country and a country that incorporate has a lot of diversity in terms of culture, language, you know, religion, people, like, from many different... That to make a country like that work, you want to have your main political parties and political candidates, you want to have them as much as possible trying to have like a big tent approach where they are, where it's not like winner take all, where they're trying to talk to different people and build a coalition. Obviously, you're never going to be able to please everybody, but you try and sort of bring as many people under the tent as possible. And you, and I feel like, you know, our, our friend who was, who was running mm -hmm. in this campaign, I feel like she tried very, very hard, like, uh, yep. to reach out to to lots and lots of different people, lots of communities in our in our area in our riding, and she did that. She did exactly what you you kind of think everybody in a in a big nation state like Canada or the United States or, or Australia uh, or the UK should be doing, right? She did exactly, and it didn't work. Right, it didn't work because somebody well, the, who was well, basically you, I mean, just it... doing identity politics, you know, was just sort of focusing on one or two different highly motivated minority groups within that uh, that riding. Yeah. And the thing is, is like that strikes me as well. You know, in the 18th century, they or, or in the the ancient world, they had a word for that. That that was corruption. Like for them, corruption was quite literally whenever uh, in the, the Republican, you know, small mm -hmm. R Republican. Trying to draw support from a particular. Anytime position. corruption was the, the ancient conception of corruption was when you have one particular part of the of the community takes control of the apparatus of government and they do so and in the in their interests. So for them, corruption could be everything from um, the rich, like if, if like the 1% sees government and govern just in the interest of the 1%, uh, for, for the ancients, that would have been considered corruption. But the ancients would also say that if a majority, uh, if like 60% of the population seizes control of government and gets elected and only governs in the interest of that 60%, and let's say confiscates all the wealth of the one percent, mm -hmm. or like horribly oppresses minority groups. That's also corruption. Just so a, they would so have thought... anytime a part uh -huh. governs in the in the interest of the part rather than so, the interest of the res publica, mm -hmm. right? the people's thing. Right? Well, so, I mean, John. I mean, the thing about the thing about this race that I was involved in, it was a nomination race, right? So. Um, just to put into context for the people who uh, who may be listening, so it was um, a nomination contest to become the Liberal Party candidate for the riding of of Outremont. Um and uh, our my candidate's rival won with one particular uh, demographic. So she had a very highly mobilized um, uh, ethnic group who backed her, 
And and they had school buses going and picking people up <laughs> at their homes yeah. and then driving them home. Yeah. They had a whole bunch of school buses. And so this this community, which I have nothing against that community at all, right? I, but they are, they represent a small percentage of the population of this riding. They and do. they were allowed they basically decided but, like But John, yeah. that's because other people didn't vote. And I think that our rival was just very strategic. And that's not to say that um, the candidate I was working for wasn't strategic. I would say, you know, yes, she, you know, my girl, Kim, definitely reached out to, you know, more communities um, and and tried to do that, in a, you know, try to be more holistic in her approach to to gathering support than our rival did. Um, on the other hand, we lost. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. And part of the reason we lost is our people just didn't come out to vote. It's not that the system was rigged. You know, it's that our rival was strategic. She knew that if she got the support of that one group, that they were that they would be very likely to actually come out en masse and vote. And that's exactly what happened. And so my takeaway was very different from yours. Um, my takeaway was simply that, you know, I think that people who are interested in the political process and who are involved have to redouble their efforts to get citizens implicated. And, you know, and I don't think that whatever the the people who are in charge of that kind of thing, I don't think they're doing a very good job, which is why we have such low um, participation numbers, you know, uh, in terms of voting, especially at the nomination level, which is the primaries for you Americans. Um, but uh, yeah, so my takeaway was no, I mean, you, you, we have to find a way to get many more people involved, including different ethnic groups and different minority communities and majority communities, get people interested in the process and come out and and vote. So somehow, I don't know, I mean, re revive some interest in the democratic process itself. But I really do not, I don't hold, I don't hold what happened against the rival campaign at all. Um, I wish things had turned out differently for us, of course. But yeah, I, I don't think it was a breach of the democratic process or anything like that. I really feel like the responsibility lies with the people who have the vote and don't bother to exercise it. Yeah. No, I, I see. I see your point. I mean, definitely no. There was no laws broken or anything like that. I just think if, oh, and just, if oh, well, that would happen all the time yeah. and, and systemically, I think the end result would be that uh, we wouldn't have democracy for long. Well, I should say, I think that at the nomination level, that kind of thing does happen with, you know, there are different sort of demographic groups in different places who tend to vote together, who, you know, for whatever reason, have a certain, uh, you know, um, cohesion, community cohesion at the political level. And they're able to, you know, sort of um, um, leverage those communities to come out and vote. Um, and they're different ones in, in different locations. Uh, so it isn't any one particular group. But... Um, what was I going to say? Oh, but this is sort of t more typical at the nomination level. So I, I just in fairness to the person who did win the, the Liberal Party nomination, Rachel Bendayan, um, I think from what I've seen since the nomination and going into the, the by-election that took place recently, I think she is making strong efforts actually to reach out to, to different demographics and different communities. And I, I, you know, applaud her for that um nominations are grueling <laughs> <laughs> are yeah. grueling process uh you have to be strategic and the, 
and the way in which you know you manage to actually secure the the candidacy does not necessarily reflect how you know how you're going to um, to uh, represent the people after that. I, you know, yeah, I think no, it that, really that, is just about point. winning that particular thing. It isn't. It isn't. A, yeah, it doesn't Because uh-huh. I guess I'm thinking about also, like, from a political science perspective, like, if you look at uh, what has uh, come before civil wars, like, when Stephen Marsh was on last time, we talked about this, like, mm-hmm. at length. If you look at um, civil wars that have happened in the last, you know, couple hundred years, and what comes before civil wars, well, there's some interesting patterns that actually jump out at you. And one of them is that, when you have a particular region um, of a, especially when it's geographically defined quite a bit, when you have a region of a country that feels um, feels like they are totally shut out of the political process, and that um, that the the powers that be don't even have to try Mm -hmm. to kind of court their vote or their support at all. They don't even have to pretend to court their support. That is one of the things that happens before. And, you know, probably one of the cases that our our listeners would be most familiar with is if you look at the United States in the 1850s, right? So you had um, from the time, uh, for most of the 19th century, you had these two big political parties, right? The Democrats Mm -hmm. and the Whigs. And they both... Uh, were well represented in the North and the South. And so because they were bisectional parties, they had to make compromises. They had to, you know, very similar to what the Liberal Party in Canada has to do now. It has to sort of do things in the full knowledge, you know, pipelines and things like that. They have Mm -hmm. to do things in the full knowledge that it's going to completely piss off a bunch of their constituents. But they do it because they, they really want to govern in the interests of the whole country rather than just the the region where they have their most support, mm-hmm. for instance. So um, they, the bisectional parties very much had to be moderate on certain questions, right? But then um, when you had the, the rise of the uh, Free Soil Party, right, and then the Free Soil Party kind of like collapsed and the Whig Party broke apart... And suddenly you got the emergence of the Republican Party. And the Republican Party in uh, 1860, they they didn't even bother. Lincoln didn't even bother to campaign in any of the southern states. He wasn't even on the ballot. How come? Like, well, he was an abolitionist. He right? didn't so need he... to. Not really. He was actually like like super, super conservative. Um, but how did conservative. he sort of declare that he... That that was something that happened that in the middle of the Civil War. His thinking changed a lot, uh-huh. like over the course of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But he initially he he said very clearly, "I don't want to touch slavery where it is," um, and basically right. he just wanted to uh, make sure that it didn't spread into the new states that were being created in the Western territories and things like that. He's like, "I don't want slavery to spread, but where it is already." You know, uh, we're he, we're gonna leave it alone. But the point is, is I mean, obviously slavery was incredibly evil, and that. But just leaving that aside, because this is part of a pattern that you can find in many, many, mm-hmm. many different countries. So they, the Republican Party, because the North, all, almost the vast majority of new immigrants 
went to northern states, not to the slave states for many reasons. But so the population of the north was growing and growing, 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 growing. And so they were getting more representation in uh, Congress, more electoral votes. And then the new states that were being formed it, out in the west were mostly becoming, um, you know, they were free states, as they called them, like no slavery there. So numerically, um, there had been this kind of when the f country was formed, there was a balance between mm -hmm. the slave states and the free states. Well, increasingly, the free states had like the most of the money, most mm -hmm. of the numbers, most of everything. So in 1860, he proved that a party that didn't even wasn't even on the ballot in the South could win the presidency. And so at that point, uh, the South just were like, well, we're out of here. Like, yeah. what's the point? Like, you could, you know, imagine if. You know, I try and when I'm explaining, they've already lost. They might as well. Like, yeah, I, I try and ex when I'm teaching this, and I teach a class on like on political violence. I'm like, when I'm trying to explain this to Canadian students, I say, imagine if Stephen Harper could get elected and just not even come to Quebec, not even try and speak French, just basically say like, I'm going to govern in the interests of Alberta. And yeah. and in Western Canada and you crybabies and welfare bums can all just like, you know, cry. like I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And I don't I, I'm not going to make any concession. We're just going to do what we want because we can win. And like what would happen? Right. Sure. Well, probably you would have Quebec separating like pretty soon. You know, at the very least, you would have a, the secessionist movement would be like big, big time emboldened. Right. Or likewise, like, what if you had uh, Justin Trudeau saying, like, after his election, like, basically, we're just going to govern in the interests of central Canada and perhaps, like, Atlantic Canada, uh, and we're not going to... You didn't vote for me, Alberta, and you hate me. You I'm not doing anything for you. Like, yeah. and I'm not going to... So now I'm going to completely close down the tar sands and forget about pipelines, forget about anything like that. You would have, like, you would have, you know, you would have insurrection. Albertans would be like, sure. well, we're separating from Canada. Like, so it's, it's very easy to see how dangerous. And so I recognize that, like, what we saw was just a nomination campaign. And, but if you think about that kind of politics, where writ you large. say, writ large, uh, like where you say, I'm yeah. just going to focus on, and, and, you know, that's why one of the things that was absolutely beautiful about, um, the speech that Justin Trudeau gave like after he was uh, elected where he said like, you know, I am, I, yes, I was elected by certain people, but I'm going to govern in the interests of all Canadians. And I'm not going to just govern in the interests of the people who voted for me. And so for these, those of you who vote conservative or you voted NDP or you voted for the green party or for the Quebec or whatever, like, I'm your prime minister and I'm going to fight for you. And I, and he actually... Which should kind of go without saying, right? I it mean, should, but it was... But it was, it's good to say it. It was a wonderful thing that yeah. he actually... Because our, our system of government is actually based on that. I mean, if you go back like to foundational parliamentary thinkers, people like Edmund Burke, like Burke, had, you know, he has that famous... Uh, what is it? His speech to the electors of Bristol or something like that, where he says... 
you know, yes, you've been elected by this particular region, but once you come to Parliament, you have to try and think about the interests of the whole country, of the Commonwealth. You can't, yes, you have to fight for your district, but sometimes what's good for the country is maybe not going to be so great for your district. Like, and you, and yeah. you have to be able to separate, uh, separate those things. Like I, I remember a friend of mine who worked for a, um, a senator in, in Maine. And he said one of those like wonderful moments where he just was like, wow, there are like some seriously noble, good people in this world. He was working for the senator. This is a couple of decades ago, and this was just when like the the Cold War had kind of ended, mm-hmm. and they were military spending in the United States was was dropping a great deal. It was still very very high, but it was dropping a great deal, and so they just didn't need to have so many military bases anymore, right? And so they had to cut military bases, and I think they were going to shut down like maybe like a third of them or something like that. Wow. And so the senator he was working for, she was on a committee that had to decide which ones to close. And they had to look at like a lot of different factors about like how useful they were. They, they, they looked at many, many different things. And there was a big plant and a big military, whatever, uh, thing in Maine, right? Mm-hmm. And when she was thinking about the interests of the whole country and what she came to the conclusion, it was very obvious that this should be one of the military bases to close. But uh, and, that's a really hard. Call yeah. And, and, and her advisor said, like, if you do this, this is going to kill you. This is going to kill you. You're not going to be reelected. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, uh, so be it. Like, right. this is the right thing to do. Like, I'm not supposed to be just here to advocate on behalf of like, well, it's a real I'm supposed to think of, yeah. about like the good of the whole country. And like some of these have to close. Mm-hmm. Closing these is going to be really good because we're spending a massive amount of money on military spending that we don't, that we could be putting to roads, to bridges, to schools, to hospitals, to just reducing people's taxes. Like this is a good thing. And some of them have to close and this, it makes, it's the right thing to do. And so she, voted for closing she and did she pay a political price yes she was uh she was kicked out of office and he's like i've never been uh, it was just this reminder that there are actually really like there are good people good people that that stick by yeah principle i mean you were asking me you know what else did i learn from from you know my experience working on that campaign and uh one thing that i i have a greater appreciation for at least a better understanding of is how difficult it is or must be for politicians to leave office or to make um those kinds of compromise or those kinds of concessions to reality right that may actually uh, result in their being thrown out of office because it's so unbelievably effortful to actually gain office right yeah um and the <clears throat> In theory, I mean, the reason why you you know you're doing that is that you you know you have a you sort of have a vision of of how you can help your your people and your country, and so but the the kinds of things you have to do to actually win office, as we were just saying, can be you know sometimes uh, run contrary to one's ideals. So there's that, and then once you're in office, it's a it's you know especially in places like the states, but here in Canada too, I think to a large extent, it's just constant campaigning, constant. I mean, the, these people are. Politicians are on call practically twenty four seven. I mean, it's all day, and then it's every evening, and it's and then it's weekends, and it's a constant effort of persuasion. I mean, it's 
it, you know, when you hear politicians saying, well, I want to quit office so that I can spend more time with my family, I believe them. (laughs) 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 Sort of. Um, But uh, yeah, so when somebody like this, the senator of Maine you're talking about um, is actually willing to risk all of that investment of time and effort and intellectual, emotional effort and, 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 you know, um, lost time with their family and all of that, uh, in order to do the right thing. I mean, yeah, it's, it's even more laudable than it would be in like the, the non-political world, the lay world, right? Yeah. It is a huge sacrifice for them. Huge. Yeah. And, but the thing is, is if we, I, I don't see how the kind of society that we live in, I don't see how it can survive if we don't have, um, people willing a, to do that. Yeah. Like a yeah. lot of people, in, in big and small ways, um, who are willing to make compromises. And I mean, from the smallest relationships from like, like, you know, even like in something as small as just like a marriage, right? I mean, like one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was, uh, somebody said, you know, like when you're in a disagreement with your spouse, rather than going into the situation thinking like, you know, here are my interests and what I want and what I don't want and things like that, rather than doing that. Cause at that point it's just like a zero sum game. It's mm-hmm. like, whatever I win, it's like you lose and vice versa. So, well, you have to think about in any negotiation, there's like a third person there. There's like the marriage, right. And there's what's good for the marriage yeah. and what's not good for the marriage. So if you think about like the, what's good for the marriage being like the deciding tiebreaker vote, right. So maybe like, you want this and I want, you know, I want that. But what is the marriage But want? what is what is good mm-hmm. for the marriage? Well, yeah. if, if what I want is good for the marriage, then we should do that, right? If you want, if what you want to do is like good for the marriage, we should do that, right? So I feel like likewise in, in organizations, in corporations, universities, colleges, communities, uh, ridings, countries, if we're going to pull off like cooperative behavior, we have to have people who are willing to think about what is the common good for the community? What is the common good for the country? And the, the corrupting influence of people who just game identity politics of one kind of, and there's, there's many different versions of it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, that, and that, that ultimately, I think Jordan Peterson is totally right about this, that, uh, that uh, Axel Vanderberg, that's his name, the guy who wrote the Imminent Utopia, <laughs> uh, who teaches at McGill, Axel Vanderberg. Yeah. Uh, but but what Axel Vanderberg says, and, and Jordan Peterson says this also in his um, his long essay into the, the new version of the Gulag Archipelago, right? He mentions oh, right. this, yeah. right? He says mm-hmm. like the basic problem with with Marxism at at its at its core, and this is not just Marxism; it, it, pl- it applies to many kinds of corruption and identity politics is that if you your primary decision always is like what is good for my class right what is good for my ethnic group what is good for my my gender my like you know whatever what is group for what is good for my group if that is your motivating choice all the time it's it leads to it leads to all sorts of problems because like if that can't be but do you think that we're living in a world that's more um, in peril now than it was at some time in the recent past? I mean, you know, we talk a lot about identity identity politics, and obviously politically, you know, in North America and the West, we're more polarized than we were back in the 90s. And, 
And, and uh, you know, there are all these weird new issues that are bubbling to the surface, um, as we've talked about endlessly, you know. Um, but do you think that it's actually worse or do you think that we're casting it in different terms or do you think it has a different flavor? I mean, in everyday life, when negotiating, you know, walking down a crowded sidewalk or going into a store, getting a job or whatever it might be in real life activities, do you feel that um, the way in which humans are interacting with each other has taken on a different cast or feels different or that the game, that the rules have somehow changed or the game has changed you know, I think absolutely of- I think absolutely it's it's we're at a very very dangerous point right now. I think uh, just you know to take one example that I think illustrates the the larger case um after this this horrible shooting mosque mm. shooting that happened right in New Zealand um one of the first responses that a friend of mine who's a very very smart guy he's actually like one of the smartest people I know um very, very smart guy. One of the first things he did, he like he tweeted this. He said, this is just further illustration of the fact that um, that basically pluralism uh, is a failed experiment, that large societies with lots of people living together from different, that this is uh, that the the multicultural pluralist, this is a, a failed experiment. And that basically what we need to do is in the same way that we need to break up Amazon and Facebook and all these big monopolies, we need to break up these big nation states into much smaller, uh, more manageable units that are much more kind of uh, like democratically cohesive, more like homogeneous, homogeneous? more kind of ethnically and religious and uh, like homogeneous. So people should like split up into smaller units um, so city states and and like kind of like so like Indian ethna, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so he said like we need to. It's because these oh. like bigger is small is beautiful, bigger is not better, and um, the these things are going to keep on happening until we realize that this was a really great idea. It was a nice idea. It was noble, but it doesn't work. People don't. People need to have. A certain level of kind of uh, community cohesion and things like that, and these things are just too big. They're too unwieldy. These big nation states that we have right now are too. Uh, I mean, unwieldy. I think, yeah. And, and my response to to him is like, you know, this is exactly what people said a century ago. Mm-hmm. This was central to the whole Wilsonian doctrine, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That the problem that the problems that led to World War One was uh, Realpolitik, Bismarck, and the whole system of having these big, unwieldy empires that were, like, just too too big. And, and this was... And so the solution uh, a century ago that seemed totally reasonable to everybody was we should just... Uh, everything, you know, every group should have their little ethno-state and they should each... And if we do that, it's going to create uh, peace. Actually... It completely fucking didn't. <laughs> like it did not, because you of ended course. up with all sorts of stranded minority populations mm-hmm. within these new states that were defined uh, in a, in a, and some some stranded populations pretty terribly. I mean, like the Armenians didn't have sure. a state, and so they were kind of in different places. And you had you know all, all these um, new. Yet so you had the problem of stranded populations within these new states that are overtly defined as like this is 
an ethnically you know, defined state. So you had stranded populations, and then actually it didn't create peace because all of those countries started fighting with each other, fighting over borders and things like that. And, and of course, like you say, India and Pakistan, Amen. and then Pakistan and Bangladesh, are, that did not create more peace in South Asia, you know, splitting into more, you know, more homogeneous it it didn't so i think it's one of those things that uh, because we have such historical amnesia we don't realize that like the arguments that my friend was saying are almost They're, word for word mm-hmm. what people were saying uh, it's been a century ago and, yeah yeah they said oh yeah if we just like kind of retreat back to our what could be simpler enclave, right? what what <laughs> could go wrong right yeah. like so cuz you still end up having to deal with uh, with diversity within whatever, even if you get to a pretty small unit, you still end up having to deal with diversity. But then the bigger problem for me is that the way the world works now, you're interconnected with everybody else anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like our weaponry can can go pretty far, right? So our, our germs can spread pretty rapidly. Our economic problems can spread pretty rapidly. We are so incredibly interconnected right now that the idea that we can just like disconnect and like, I'm just going to take my toys and go and play with my friends. Like we just, it's not even like, unless you want to be like the Amish or something and go out in the country and grow your own food and have your, I I suppose they could maybe do it, but, Mm -hmm. but even then they're just benefiting from the fact that they're Mm -hmm. in a nation state that guards the walls. Right. Right. Like if the United States and Canada collapsed tomorrow, the Amish would not last for long. In a Walking Dead world, <laughs> they would like they wouldn't last for long, you know. In the back to landers and all these other people, mm-hmm. kind of living in these fantasy worlds in rural areas. So, so in the nineties and actually through most of the two thousands, I thought Europe was really great. I thought it was fantastic that you could travel around Europe. That you know they had these sort of populations that could move from one place to another in search of beautiful beaches and a better job and lovely food and whatever it might be. And I think, you know, we all benefited from, you know, anybody was traveling as well. To Europe, you know, oh, it was amazing. I remember, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, it really felt, you know, back in the 90s um, and until not that long ago that maybe we hadn't reached the end of history, but we've re- reached <laughs> the end of bullshit. <laughs> I mean, like we, we, we could have a really good time anywhere. People were generally well disposed to one another and things were looking pretty good, right? Yeah. They really were. And, and they, you know, and, and a lot of people I think benefited from that. Um, and then, and now there's, yeah. what's happening. Now. And that's why I think it's so fascinating that you're writing a novel that is just about, yeah, that, it takes place just that, before and Yeah, after just and before after. everything yeah. went downhill, like just before well, before 9-11 yeah. and before all that stuff. Like in the it's mm. it's mainly around like 1999, right? Like Yes. Well, sort of the world before and the world after and the ways in which they're different and and yeah. And the but it's a fascinating moment because it's just kind of when I remember I, I lived through that, like that excitement of oh my god, like it every, felt like it felt like a very fresh, um, very hopeful world. In a lot of ways. Um, And, and anyway, so, you know, I mean, I've always sort of, I'm a globalist. Like, I think it's great. I think that we, you know, um, throughout my life, I've always thought the fewer borders we can have, the better. And the more movement of people and ideas and, and just great stuff, you know, that humanity can, can share um, amongst, among each other, the better. But, 
But then, you know, with with sort of the migrant crises of the last few years and with the industrialization and, you know, with all of these other problems that we see as clearly as as day, you know, have led to um, these sort of kind of nationalistic retrenchments, Donald Trump, Brexit, all of these other things. Um, you know, my tendency at first was just to be completely appalled and what what is wrong with these people? And this is so idiotic and we had it so good. Now I feel like, well, I I mean, I, I do feel differently about it. I sort of, I have some sympathy for the idea that, well, you know, um, kind of open borders are great, but then you, you know, you lose something, you lose something of the flavor, you lose something of a sense of autonomy over, over your, your home, your home base, um, that the things that make you special that people want to come and visit are going to get bled out because everything is just going to end up being like this big, massive, boring porridge, cultural porridge. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I actually have a little more sympathy for, you know, for that kind of that feeling, that point of view. I don't think that we should, um, I, I, I am not as uh, sort of dismissive of that, of those ideas and those feelings as I was maybe three you know, two, three years ago. Um, I feel like there is an argument to be made for sort of, you know, preserving culturally what you have and for, and for, you know, and I can understand too, for some people, like if looking at the UK, um, you know, there are huge regions in the North of England where nobody works and they don't know how to get out of their their rut and nobody really has any great answers for them. And then they have people coming from the rest of Europe to, you know, to work and so on in, in the country. It's very, very complicated, but I can really understand how these people are saying, you know what? No, forget it. We're done. Like, we're just going to go back to the way we were before. And, and then, you know, people say, yeah, but economically, you know, you're ultimately, this is going to harm you more than it helps. And there's a part of me that can understand how people are saying, we don't care. <laughs> like, we don't care. We just want, you know, we just want to preserve what little we had, what little sort of uh, um, self-conception is left to us. So anyway, so I, I feel a little more patient with, you know, with those kinds of movements. Um, and I think that I, I think that we should all be a little bit more patient with it and try to understand it and not gloss it over or not be mean about it or not call those people idiots but actually find a way to accommodate that. I think it's really important in this world that we not, you know, we, we sort of have this sort of, or anyway, it's cast this way. If you're on the left, then you think it's all bullshit. And, and you know, you just want to maintain um, the sort of the order as it is. And then on the right, there's, well, you guys are a bunch of globalist bastards who don't care about us. And uh, you look down your nose at, noses at us. And so we're just going to go and lob grenades at you from over here. Obviously, that's untenable. I think we, well, as usual, I come back to my <laughs> We have to be nicer to each other yeah. and more understanding. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the autonomy thing is is a really big piece that a lot of people just ignore, especially people who are, uh, you know, a lot of our friends who are sort of communists and socialists, mm -hmm. you tend to see things like in very, they reduce things to economic terms very, yeah. very much, right? They don't realize how much the desire for uh, for autonomy fuels a lot of these movements, genuine desire for that. And I, I was actually talking to a f friend of mine the other day about this. And like he, you know, I said to him, I'm like, look, you, you've been involved in the labor movement for a long time. Like, just look at the history of the labor movement for 
a lot of the 18th century and the 19th century, even into the like first like decade or two of the 20th century, in many, many areas, the, what the labor movement was pushing for most of all was not more money. That was like pretty low down on their list of demands. What they wanted was like control over their over work the day, over yeah. their time. They mm. wanted to be able to like work Which at their own pace. And... Yeah, they wanted to be able to work at their own pace. If they want to take a break and talk to their coworker and hang, they want to be able to take a, go to the bathroom when they want to go to the bathroom. They found it so dehumanizing, mm-hmm. even if they were going to be paid more. Right. They found it so dehumanizing that like this manager mm-hmm. tells you like when you got to come in, when you got to leave the pace of work, when you take a bathroom stop break. talking to your like mm-hmm. when you can take a bathroom break. They mm-hmm. found that just they're like, you know, I, I will keep my productivity at a certain level. I'll make sure that I produce a certain, but I want to be able to like have sure. control over the pace of work. And, and if I want to get all my work done in four hours or get it all done in eight hours, I want to be able to do that. Right. And that's um, that's something that's very forgotten. And I think communities want that, too. They want to be able Mm -hmm. to feel like they have a control over who's going to join their community, what's going to be the the rules, the game in their neighborhood. And that's that seems reasonable. Seems fair enough. Right. It seems fair. Like it seems. And to say that anybody who who wants that is is like a racist or a control freak or something like yeah, that. I have no like, patience for that. Yeah, that, that doesn't that make line. any sense at all. Like, yeah. I mean, if if you just to take it down to a, like a, you know, I've been, you you have too, I'm sure, but in like roommate situations when you got like a bunch of roommates and if a new roommate comes in to, and joins like the house, they have to conform to like the rules of the house. They can't come in sure. and like say everybody else has to like, do things my way or I'm just going to completely disregard the way you do things. Like uh, I remember one roommate situation I was in where like we had this, this new guy, he was almost like, like a Borat type character. I mean, he was like just (laughs) horrible. Like, oh, not quite as bad as Borat, but he was like a Borat type character. And he, at one point, like said to like one of our roommates, he's like, uh, I can't even do his his accent. It was amazing. It was like Moldovan. He's from Moldova, and he he said uh, to one of our one of our roommates who was gay. He's like, look, uh, if you are to be the gay, uh, that's okay, but you can't. You know, basically, like, you can't be making out with like your boyfriend on the couch because it's it's upsetting to me. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, uh, he said, uh, well, you know. There's five of us living here and you've just moved in. Like, why don't you like not, you know, first of all, I don't make out with my boyfriend on the couch all the time. It was one time because I hadn't seen him in two months because he was like, like out of the country. And so I was very happy to see him. And I was a little tipsy. It's not like we're making out on the, you know, fool. That was like kind of a one time thing. But like, just don't stare. Like, why are you staring like at me? And, uh, but so I understand, you know, if, if you take like a roommate situation and you like extrapolate, extrapolate to like Australia or Canada (laughs) or the States or Montana or Vermont, if you have people joining a community and like not making any efforts to, to sort of fit in, in some ways, I can understand what people would be like pissed about that and just be like, you know, what's, what's going on? (laughs) Like that's, and that's not necessarily uh that's not evil for saying that right but 
But there are, you know, and this has always been the case. This was the case like in the 19th century. Is the people that uh, that really push for open borders, the vast majority of the the forces that push for open borders, they're not doing it for idealistic reasons. <laughs> I mean, they're doing it because they want to drive down the price of labor, because they want, I mean, you know, look yeah, at... Yeah, they have their interests, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like, this is what Trump has figured out pretty quickly. I mean, I... I I wonder if he knew it beforehand, but well, he should, given all of the you know undocumented. I mean, like what I think he has at his hotel. Yeah, but I, I think like what Trump, you know, for one reason or another, whether he did before or afterwards, but he must have realized that once he got elected, that the biggest opponents of his idea of the wall and border security are not Democrats. <laughs> like the biggest opponents of that are. Right. Uh, Republicans who are involved in like the ranching industry and who have agriculture, farming, yeah, yeah, farming along like the border. These are all like right wing in general, like Republican donors who do not want like that. But because that's, I mean, a lot of those industries would, uh, would well, they shrivel up and die, they would they shrivel up and die, or they would have to. I don't know. Something radical or would lemons have to. Lemons would cost five dollars each. Yeah, they would like things like there's all these industries mm-hmm. that that are predicated on access to um, illegal cheap labor. Cheap labor, right? Like they are, and so they they would just be in a huge amount of, and they know that, right? So they don't want they don't want the wall. They don't want border security at all. So, and that's always been the case. Like if, if you go back, um, I mean, this stuff's all like public knowledge now, but if you look in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, the people who were pushing the hardest to bring in more Italian immigrants, more Irish immigrants, more immigrants from like, more like factory your, owners, it was factory owners, barons. industrialists and stuff. like. Mm-hmm. It wasn't idealistic people saying like, we should have no borders. Oh, of course. Yeah. It wasn't those people. It wasn't like, and so it's, the debates end up being like really polarized because that's if you oppose certain things, you'll get cast like in a certain light, right? But I do suspect, though, cynical as this sounds, that that um, on the sort of left left wing side, the Democrat side, that there is also the question of votes that they do get a lot of their votes from minorities and from immigrants, and that that's a big reason why they push for it. And I think oh, the same I'm, is I'm true sure. here in Canada. Oh yeah. Oh no, absolutely. I, I think that's 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 absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I think if if you I mean there was a lot of people talking about uh, not so much now, <laughs> but in the nineties there was uh, or the early aughts and late nineties, there were a lot of people saying that um there was going to be uh, a lot of a lot of Hispanic voters were going to turn to the Republican Party, and a lot of them were actually turning to the Republican Party. And you had George W. Bush giving like speeches in Spanish yeah. and really making a play for uh, for Latino votes and stuff like that. And I remember at the time, people. I at one point I was down in El Paso, and I was another story. But I was down there for like a week for this other reason, but a number of people down there said to me like they were like political type people and everything. And they said, yeah, if this continues, you watch Democrats aren't going to be supporting open borders so much anymore. <laughs> and they, they said exactly the same thing you're saying. They said a lot of the support is because they feel like uh, everybody, everybody, if you like 
all new immigrants that come in, the vast majority of them are going to vote Democratic. And everybody or liberal in Canada. Yeah, liberal in Canada. They're yeah. going to vote. And that's right. And, and definitely, I know that I've heard exactly the same thing from sovereigntists here in Quebec. They feel like the vast majority of immigrants are end up uh, becoming federalists and are and so they're naturally like, enough. We should we should stop. Uh, we should limit severely limit the amount of immigration to Quebec. Sure, I mean right? they, this has been an issue for a long time for Quebecers or for I should say for separatists. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, that's an open. Story. And the idea that like that you know, so what we have to do is kind of somehow limit them. And then, but of course, the, the only, well, there's many problems with that. But a big problem with that is that they have the lowest birth rate in the Western world. So if you, you have to keep replenishing, if you're not going to have uh, immigrants coming in, then how exactly are you going to like keep your population going? Yep. But, uh, well, anyway, on that wonderful cynical note, I guess we'll, we'll, end, we'll end there. So uh, maybe just to finish off, if you could, if you're, if you're willing to, I mean, I know you've been, you're working on this novel, uh, but you, um, you are normally a very prolific writer, but then this uh, the political campaign took up, took up all of your energy for a <laughs> while. And so I'm many, wondering many if, uh, yeah. just to finish off, can you just sort of tell our listeners what kind of uh, writing projects you're writing on? At the, you're like working on at the I'm, moment? I'm really working full time on the novel right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so... Then maybe the campaign was a good thing. <laughs> It kind of got you out of, like, uh, article land. Yeah, commenting on current events. But actually, I I, I miss it. Um, uh, There is something really, obviously, really gratifying about just publishing stuff and having it appear right away and and getting feedback. And um, so, yeah, so I'm definitely, and I still have to write about, you know, kind of the experience that I went through. Um, but I've been pulling back a little bit from from following politics as closely recently um, for many of the reasons that we discussed today. Is, um, I feel like, or maybe we didn't actually get into it that much, just this this notion of the polarization and the, you know, ideological retrenchment. I'm, so, I'm just so bored of it, right? I'm, I'm bored of commenting on, in a way, I'm bored of commenting on that. I'm, I'm, I grow weary of people recycling the same um the same talking points i feel like i feel like the whole world right now this is a feeling that is in my heart it's not necessarily in my head but like the world hinges on what happens with the Mueller report like in a way i just want that big egg to get laid <laughs> so that we can move on and have new discussions does that mm-hmm. make any sense you might have to cut that off <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which, but, is, which is but, you know most people say it's going to be nothing, right? Like, uh, well, it's gonna, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Well, there's not just a more, but but you know, I, I do feel like I, I feel like what's been going on in American politics with Donald Trump and with all of the the stuff around that has really sort of sucked the oxygen out of you know co- interesting conversations that you know maybe had in the future once again, but are not that are not being had right now. And so, um, so yeah, so I'm focusing on my book. Um, there is still lots to talk and, and write about, and I'm really grateful that you brought me on the show today. That was super fun. And, um, and yeah, so that's, that's where we're at. All I'll right. let you know when I'm finished my novel. Awesome. And, please do. Please yeah. do. All right. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me.